the path doesn't have to be straight. We have enough information that we can Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome to the We Get Real AF podcast, everybody. I'm Sue Robinson. And I'm Vanessa Alava. If you don't already, please look us up on social at We Get Real AF across all social channels. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and comment on the show. Well, today we are going to break down a technology that will impact virtually every industry of the future. You hear a lot about it, but it's not very well understood. We're talking about blockchain. Our guest is Lynn Marler, the interim chair at the Boston Blockchain Association and a fintech entrepreneur. Her company is Transformational Strategies, a global consulting business that advises clients on building digital asset strategies, understanding global payments, clearing and custody services, and much more. Lynn, welcome to WePress. Welcome. I'm super excited to be here and uh, I hope I can break it down for everybody so that it's really clear because I do believe it is a technology that's going to change our lives dramatically. This is absolutely an area that's uh, very new to Vanessa and me and we've wanted to unpack it on the show for a long time, but it's kind of intimidating because there's so much to it. However, before we dive in, we would love for you to share with our listeners where they can find you and transformational strategies online. You can find me on LinkedIn. I think we can post my uh, LinkedIn address or we can, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Lynn Marler, um, and you can find it through uh, Boston Blockchain Association dot org. I think those are the easiest places to find me. Great. Well, Lynn, let's start at the very beginning. And if you could give us a high level definition of what blockchain is and, and it, from the perspective of it's a security system or it's a data tracking system or something like that. It's a mathematical technology and it is essentially a chain of blocks that are time stamped which is critical across lots of computers that are more secure than a centralized platform. And I know there's a lot of words in there and I can detect those, but think about it as databases. So I think you're probably familiar with databases with identical copies stored on many computers. The technology requires, you know, what's called quantum computing, a lot of computing power, but it facilitates transactions between individuals or companies that don't know or trust each other. And so I'm going to stop there. Okay. So I just want to, in my brain, I'm thinking when you say different blocks, so it's copies of the same database. So are we talking almost like backups, like a backup upon a backup upon a backup? Yeah. So Every transaction is recorded in a block. And I'll give you, let's say I have a car and I want to sell it to, I'm going to sell it across the line, right? Um, I'll sell it to you, Vanessa, and then Sue. When I go to sell that car to you, Vanessa, um, what is in that block is when I bought the car, 
what I paid for the car, maybe what the identification number is on the car, all of the specifics of that car. When you buy that car from me, all right, everything about that car, the mileage in that car, it is immutable. It cannot be changed in a mathematical world. The information is perfect. I can't change the odometer. None of that is applicable in this environment. When I sell it to you, all of the data, what I paid, all of the information goes to you. You drive that car for two years, then you sell it to Sue. Same exact thing. The initial purchase that Lynn made gets to Sue. So it, it is like, if you think about a real estate transaction, you know, did you buy the house? Did it include the refrigerator or the curtains or whatever? like a deed in a sense, um, but each block has a signature, I guess is a way to describe it, of the previous block. They are linked together in a chain. That's why it's called block chain. Um, as transactions get administered in a distributed, totally decentralized way. So that means we don't have a bank that says, uh, okay, yes, I'm going to authorize that transaction or, or automotive company that says, oh yeah, she didn't change the odometer. All of that was within the block. It is decentralized. You don't need to prove any of the data because it's in the block. So you don't need a third party to say, hey, check the odometer or you know, uh, check the year, check the details. You don't need that. It is a new way to store and exchange information. Many people think of it as sort of internet, the next phase of the internet. I'm going to ask you if you would just unpack one other analogy, because I want us to be really firm on this concept before we move forward. And the analogy that I heard was, if you think about a Google Doc and how many people can contribute to a Google Doc and it's distributed across many people, um, but you can see what everybody else is doing. Can you kind of maybe unpack that analogy a little bit as how blockchain would relate to that? Because I think a lot of us are familiar with making Google Docs. I, I think that's a very good analogy. And what it also does is uh, kind of like when, um, <clears throat> you know, when you have a document like that, I can go back to the original document. All right. So even though you might have changed 20 words in that document, I still, should I choose, I can go back to the original document to, if I wrote it, to say, this is what I wrote. This is how you've changed it. So the block has changed. Each time a change is made, it almost, it creates a new block in a sense, okay? So you can't, after that Google Docs has been, you know, around five of us made comments, you can't go back and say, well, I never saw the first one, or I don't know what the original one, or I don't know what changes are made. You can follow that transaction, and that's a very important thing. It is timestamped. So you can't say, well, Lynn, I didn't see your comments. Mm. They're timestamped in there. They, they started yesterday, and then somebody else made a comment and so forth. So there, the, the immutability of it stays with the document. You know what changes have been made. So, yes, I think that's a very good analogy in the real world, um, though – um, you know, we're talking more about what I might consider commerce, uh, business, financial instruments, uh, healthcare. You know, we'll talk about that in a minute, but yeah, your energy as well. Well, let's go ahead and do that then, and maybe take that next step and give us some examples of how this immutable ledger of transactions is applicable in industries that all of us 
use every day. So finance, let's start there. So you kind of have to pause for a second, especially someone like myself who's spent, you know, (laughs) decades in traditional financial services. Um, And the way I think about it is, you know, if you want to buy a house or buy a car or boat or whatever, you probably go to a bank. That is a central authority. So if I go deposit $10,000 in the bank, the bank says, okay, she has $10,000. If I want to buy a car from you, um, the bank knows I have $10,000. If your car is $5,000, they know that I can actually pay for that. That central authority is gone. That doesn't exist in this world. I know that's really hard, but it eliminates that need because we create trust among ourselves in this mathematical equation. And it is hard to get your arms around. So there's no intermediary like a bank that that you could go to and say, hey, she wants to buy my car. Does she have the money to buy my car? Right? Um, In business, oftentimes, if I was going to buy a business from you or maybe a large supply of goods, I might go to your bank and say, I want to make sure she's got the money to be able to pay these $100,000 for this equipment or whatever it might be. And the bank isn't going to tell me exactly what your balance is, but they're going to say, hey, she's a good client. Yes, she typically has a balance equivalent to, you know, what you're going to be buying from her. Um, So, yeah, you know, she's valid, you know, check mark. All right. In this new world, that doesn't exist. It is in the transaction. So that's a little hard to pack your uh, arms around. But I think there's one critical thing I want to get out there, and that is that there are really two types of blockchain. One is called unpermissioned or shared. And that is kind of like your Google Docs, okay? It's owned and accessed by a distributed decentralized database But it's not really, it contains the words that I write, but it doesn't have my bank account number, my balances, my credit card information, da, 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 right? That, I want a permission. So as an example, uh, if I was going to buy a house from you, a very expensive house, you, you might say, well, I don't know if you have money to buy it. I might say, okay. I have a permission blockchain and I will show, I will give you a glimpse into my bank account or which, or my wallet more appropriately in the crypto land, I will give you a, a chance to look at it between 1142 and 1145. You see, I have the money to buy your house. That is the way that I think about permission. So permissioned blockchain to me is it's only a limited number of people that I trust. Now, what's happening is the world is moving into digital wallets. So you may have heard about wallets in the crypto and blockchain world. That is almost like your bank account. So I might give you my bank account, but you can't see in it. To be in a permissioned environment, I give you a glimpse into my bank account or my wallet to say, hey, she does have those assets to be able to buy your house. So can can we kind of say that it's kind of applying the rules loosely of like a HIPAA for healthcare? So it's like, hey, I'm going to let you see this for a glimpse of time. You see, I can afford it. But then that permission is taken away at a certain amount, you know, a lot of time that I've allowed you to look at it. But it, it also establishes trust. That is a perfect application or understand to create understanding. Yes, 
if you were my medical doctor um, and I, I wanted you to see my records, I mean, I, I believe records, you know, they're, they're my records, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I would give permission in a HIPAA environment to review my documents before I come in and meet with you. So can you tell us in everyday use case of what we're starting to see in a layman's daily life, um, would a Venmo be kind of a version of using this new blockchain from like seller to seller? I mean, this could be, you know, a person selling something in your neighborhood and you're using Venmo to pay them. Um, is that a version of that? And then if there are other versions, so people can connect the dots as to what applications are using this type of technology and, and potentially where it's going. Okay, so I love the, the Venmo because you are absolutely right. So let's let's put it in context. Um, let's say that um, I, I'm your hairdresser mm-hmm. and you want to uh, pay me. All right. In, in, you know, take Venmo aside. I'm going to just compare Venmo to what would happen maybe pre Venmo. Um, you might write me a check. You might give me cash. Uh, you might take a credit card, but you're going to take a haircut, right? So it's at least 3% on the transaction. Um, but those are probably, you know, you're probably going to write me a check, give me cash or uh, put on a credit card, right? All of those, think about them, have a, a, a sort of a delay or a negative. So the check, you got to go to the bank, cash a check, you know, it could bounce, you know, whatever, right? So there's a delay. You don't get that cash right away. Cash, great, but you have no record of that. So that could be good if you're a hairdresser, right? You don't have to show taxes on it, but it's dirty. A lot of people didn't want to deal with cash sort of in COVID, right? We were all Mm -hmm. afraid of cash, but you could use that cash if you use cash every day. So that's maybe a plus. Um, But if I'm somewhere where I have to carry that cash, right? You get all this cash and you're, you know, you're out on a ski mountain, right? Um, That's not good because what are you going to do with all the cash? You got to put it in your pocket. You could lose it, et cetera. And it's cash. You lose it gone. Sorry. Um, Credit card has, you know, while it has some really great properties, you're going to take a haircut. Um, All those things have timing issues, cost issues, you know, what I would call hassle factors. Venmo, on the other hand, we marry it to our bank account, right? And we put cash or something equivalent into a bucket called Venmo, a product called Venmo. It is something called a peer-to-peer network. It essentially bypasses all of those archaic systems. And having worked for a bank for a long time, most of the back office plumbing, infrastructure, highway, whatever you want to call it, is archaic. It's 40 years old. So the way money moves, if I wrote you a check, is you know, you got to go to your bank. Your bank posts it out there to my bank. My bank might say, hey, she doesn't have the money. And so they say, hey, going to bounce. But before they do that, they might come back to my bank again and say, hey, did she get paid? Does she have the money today? So there's this delay, timing, technology, all of that slows the process down. The peer-to-peer network of Venmo is instantaneous. Mm-hmm. You got the money, boom. It is similar in a in a transaction without the cost structure of a credit card because credit card processing is literally split seconds. And what happens in credit card processing is if you go swipe your card and you want to buy something for $3,000, you have a limit, whether that's $30,000 or $5,000. And all it does is say, 
Okay, Vanessa's limit's 30. She wants to spend 3,000. Great, she's got 27 left. All right, if, if you're bumping against the 30,000, it's gonna say, eh, we're not gonna approve that. Similar in Venmo, but it immediately takes it out and immediately transacts in, in a different highway infrastructure network. It's all new, it's peer to peer, individual to individual. Banks are out of the equation in a sense. So I have a question because we've talked about how this is an immutable ledger, distributed, lots of eyes on it, no centralized authority overseeing and sort of managing the system. But I also understand that there've been maybe some some hacks or problems in that system and that governments are getting involved. Um, Could you talk about that a little bit? What's going on there? I will tell you that the banks... They're not going to tell you this, but the fact of the matter is they are one step ahead of the hackers, one, okay? Every bank in the country, I worked in banks, I know that, that's a fact, all right? They're one step ahead. So the fact of the matter is, is it hackable? I, my personal opinion is anything is hackable, okay? But the data structure of this makes it much more challenging to hack. And I don't want to get too technical, but the, the cryptography, the branch of math behind it creates mathematical proofs that we don't net that is being used in banks today. All right. And it proves to be at this point in time, the highest level of security you could get. Is it hackable? My impression is probably, but it's the best we got at this point. And so that's why the banks use it. That's why the, you know, the brokerage firms use it, the clearinghouses, all that. I hope that mm-hmm. answers that part of the question. Yeah. In terms of the regulatory stuff, you know, uh, it is the Wild West. And so I would caution if, if you're going to invest in, you know, uh, w- when you think about blockchain, you also have to think about money as a medium uh, of exchange, a measure of value and a store of value. And so then you start thinking about cryptocurrencies or digital assets because cash doesn't work in this in this cryptographic blockchain world. It doesn't. I need a digital asset to exchange with you. You know, like a coin, right? That I or cash that I could give you. I can't give these in this digital world. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from Inphase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. Thanks for listening. Well, since we're talking about it, can we <laughs> let's get into the digital assets. Let's um cryptocurrency, if you can break that down as nicely as you did blockchain. <laughs> Um, explain what that is. And then even if you want to kind of get into to Bitcoin, because that's what people tend to think about when they think of cryptocurrencies. Let me first talk about <clears throat> money, because I think um, when we think about money uh, in the traditional sense, so money has three purposes, medium of exchange. I want to buy uh, your house, your car. Okay. <clears throat> I want to resolve a debt. I want to pay that off. It's for goods and services. I mean, in you know the turn of the century, I might have chickens and you got milk and we're that's that's our exchange. Mm-hmm. 
money is also a measure of value. So, you know, it, it, in an accounting system, <clears throat> I can measure different units. What's in my bank account is a measure of value. Um, you know, a billionaire status, all right? You know, I can't claim that, right? But, but some people can. That's a measure of value, billionaire. There is also something called a store of value, which is, you know, money provides a, a, what, what's considered a liquid store of value. If I have a house and I need money, I can sell my house. If I have a car and I need money, I can sell my car. Uh, so um, <clears throat> money provides a security to individuals to meet emergencies, to pay debts, to live the kind of life that they um to, to allow for the buying opportunities they want, whatever they might be, all right, food or goods. So first you have to think a little bit about that. That is money. How does, you know, when you think about uh, <clears throat> cryptocurrencies, you know, what what is a cryptocurrency? And <clears throat> it is a medium of an exchange. It is created and stored electronically in the blockchain. <clears throat> and it uses encryption. Uh, and cryptography, which we talked about, to control the creation of those monetary units. And it also verifies sort of the transfer of money. And I would say that Bitcoin is the best example. Let me break that down a second. And I'll start with Bitcoin because I think most people understand that and it's the best known, right? It's the best known of the cryptocurrencies out there. So Bitcoin, and again, these are my opinions. You can go out there and read other people's opinions, and uh, some of them are different than mine. But after spending, you know, six or seven years in this business, this is where I come up with Bitcoin only. So I'm not talking about any other crypto with Bitcoin. For me, Bitcoin really looks as a store of value and a measure of value for me. And when I say that, what I mean is that, I look at Bitcoin, you know, it's trading about $44,000 or $45,000 today for one Bitcoin. To me, that's a store of value or a measure of value. Hey, I got five Bitcoin. Okay, that I can, that's a measure of the value that I have. Or I look at it like if I own, you know, some Bitcoin, that's like owning property or land that's going to be more valuable than it might be today, that there is a future value that I'm buying into. It's an asset class that is going to appreciate in value. That is how I view it. I view it more like a store of value or a measure of value. I do not view Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. I'm not gonna go buy a cup of coffee with a Bitcoin. I'm probably not gonna buy, I could buy a Tesla. Um, I could buy some things on overstock. There's some companies that do take it, but I'm probably not gonna use it in that way. You made a, a really interesting point about the value of Bitcoin and how it translates, what its exchange rate is, and it's very volatile. And uh, we know that El Salvador just started accepting it alongside the US dollar as a formal currency. Who sets that exchange rate? Mm -hmm. Well, remember, uh, the, the bottom line is Bitcoin, through the white paper that was developed by Satoshi Nakamoto in 2008. And I will say that all of the, the new world technology, whether you're talking Bitcoin, blockchain, Ethereum, or other cryptos, are driven by what's called a white paper. So 
somebody brilliant, like uh, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto is, remember it's not, we don't know if it's a person, a group or whatever, there's, hasn't been identified, but they define the structure of this asset. And Bitcoin only has 21 million. That's a finite number. So when you say who, who sets the exchange or the price, the price is based on what people believe is the value of that asset, knowing that there's only 21 million that you can have totally. Now, 18 million have already been mined or found or are in use. When I look at it, Bitcoin as an asset class, I think, look, there's only 21 million and there are 18 million out there. I'd like to own some because if you have a finite number, it's like owning a piece of property um, in, you know. Oceanfront. Yeah, exactly. I want one, you know. Um, to me, that's going to be value. That is essentially why I think everybody's so interested in Bitcoin. Uh, the volatility is because, one, it trades similar to the markets, you know, Monday we were down a thousand points. It was down. It was down. In fact, I tried to buy some and my platform, my exchange was down on Monday. I couldn't buy it. It was at 43. I think that's a really good entry point. And so, but I couldn't buy it. They were down. Um, so I had to buy it a little higher price. Not that I was that upset because I think, you know, store of value. I'm looking this for future, but so it, it's hard to describe that it is very volatile, but when you think about a lot of things that are new, they all tend to be volatile. Um, the stock market's volatile. Look at, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if you, you know, the, the market yesterday, there's a company here out of Boston called Toast. It's a restaurant company. They just had a valuation yesterday. They just made three people billionaires. And I saw this company about four years ago. They were starting out when COVID hit, they went to zero practically. It's a restaurant uh, technology platform. Um, and they just did an IPO yesterday for like three people, a billionaires. So uh, it, wow. you know, it's very volatile. It's a, Indeed. you know, it's a lot of people are still getting their arms around it. It's not, it's not an easy concept. I've been in financial services for 35 years. It's, yeah, sometimes I'm like, wait a minute, stop. I have to rethink this. How do we know that this 21 million of Bitcoin is real? How do you trust that? I mean, is there like a blockchain situation where it says, yes, that's real, that that's going to be real and going to, you know, increase in value over time? I mean, uh, when you talk about oceanfront property, you can drive to the mm -hmm. oceanfront property, you can see it, you can touch it, you can sit on it, you can enjoy the oceanfront view. Well, how do you trust this is real? Okay, so when you, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And having been in financial services for a long time, I would ask you the same question. You know, um, do, do, you, uh, do you trust your bank? And I mean, banks fail. <laughs> you know, the financial crisis showed you that banks go under and guess what? The government bails them out. Guess who's paying for that? You and me. Companies fail. You know, look at this company out of um, China. The ripple mm -hmm. effect that that's what happened on Monday, the thousand point drop. And so then I would argue, and I know... <clears throat> You know, you really have to, I know I'm not totally answering your question, but here's the thing, you know, mutual funds are fairly new in the financial arena. I think they were started in the seventies, right? Well, mutual funds, you know, do you know what your mutual fund really has in their portfolio? And the reason I bring that up is 
during the financial crisis, many people had no idea that they were invested in stuff that they had no clue. And this holds true with a, a lot of the you know companies who are who had an investment in the real estate company in China. They didn't know they were invested in this. So there are a lot of financial vehicles that you really, unless you really do your homework, you have no idea what's behind the scenes. And it could be that they're holding Apple and some other ones as big holdings, but at the bottom of the barrel are some of these little, you know, we call them dogs, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're mm-hmm. worth it. So I would argue a little bit that financial instruments are, are, are sometimes uh, built on forward thinking um, values. So everything, you know, and, and remember mutual funds, are not insured. So, you know, at the moment, you're better putting our, putting your money in a bank account because it is insured up to a certain dollar amount. Well, and in the case of mutual funds and, and banks and dollars that, to your point, have the value that we believe the strength of the economy is behind them, but, but at least there is a government entity that can step in and say, okay, banks, you can't make these mortgage loans any anymore to people who aren't qualified. And you know, there's a uh, a fail safe system in place. Is a fail safe system in place, or is that what we're trusting this distributed blockchain system to to provide? So, well, you nailed it because we are through cryptography, through the entire mathematical perfect equation, we are trusting that that's the trust in the system. You are right, there is no, so if I, in the Bitcoin world, wallet to wallet, no banks involved, I have my wallet, you have yours, I send you a million dollars, I say, oops, I meant to send you 10,000. <laughs> Can I have that back? I can't call up my bank, there is no bank. I can't call up anybody and say, I made a mistake. Now, if I did that with my bank today, and I said, hey, I was going to buy her a car or something. Maybe it was, you know, $100,000, not a million, uh, you know, and and they might see, oh, here, you know, where's the purchase and sale? What does she actually buy? You know, there's some verification process that goes through and they say, oh, Lynn, we'll get your money back, right? I mean, unless you take off, you know, into Switzerland or out of the country, I'm going to probably get my money back, maybe not every penny, but most of it doesn't exist in this new world, right? So, I mean, there are, um, what is, and that's why I think the regulatory environment is really critical because there is no regulatory environment around these. The, even the legislators don't necessarily have all the answers. And so it is very nascent. And I think, you know, my caution is be very careful. If you're going to invest in cryptography, or I'm, I'm sorry, in cryptocurrencies or digital assets, make sure that you're doing it with with well-known providers who are willing to stand behind, like, uh, you know, um, you know, there's some companies out there or there's, you know, through a Fidelity, you can buy this Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Some of those things have a little bit, I can go to Fidelity and say, hey, you know, what happened? And, you know, you know, I'm a good customer. I screwed up. Uh, you know, you can't do that in this new world. And so it behooves every one of us to understand it because in the future, you are going to own your health data. You are going to own your digital identity. You are going to own your financial assets. You, not the bank. 
not the central authority, you. In theory, that's what this world is supposed to look like. There is, it's money for all and freedom for all. And I can, I, I control my assets. There's no bank that comes in and says, well, you know, we're going to devalue your currency, which has happened in several places around the world, um, which is happening today in the United States, right? If the infrastructure bill gets passed for three T trillion, um, that is devaluing my, my dollar. With that, you know, how is the finance world preparing for this? I mean, obviously it's out there and it's been kind of building and it's caught traction. Um, but as we know, traditionally finance world is a little um, rigid in their adoption of, of forward thinking and new concepts. So what are they, what have they been doing and what are they going to do to further um, kind of reacclimate to this new, new era? And also kind of a, another question that you can tackle is, You've done a great job explaining to us. And I think that at the end of the day, it is education, 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 to your point. So, you know, something, a technology that, you know, is supposed to make things easier, give you more agency over what you own. It's, it's very complex unless you have a Lynn Marler there to explain it to you. So if you don't have a Lynn Marler, how does this um, new wave of, of financing and controlling your money and investing live up to the expectations of user experience with technology? Let me try to answer. And, you know, I don't want you to think like, oh my God, you know, it, it's a little frightening, but it is, it's because we are really at the baby, you know, it's the, the embryo stages is the way, you know, we're not even crawling yet in this ecosystem. So let me talk a little bit maybe about uh, the, the benefits and the challenges. And I'll start with the challenges because I think those are the things that I, I think the listeners really need to understand. One is that from a legal perspective and a regulatory environment, that every state is deciding, all right, and this is not a nationwide, you know, the United States of America stands behind this, whether this is a property, an account, a security, what is it? There are some states that call it property. And in fact, the most recent, if you want to sell Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency, it is being looked at as property. So the minute you sell it, you pay taxes. So at the moment, but that is every day there's a new story. So that's a, there's a legal issue behind it. There, you know, some of the technology is not proven in terms of the pricing because it's very expensive for, for financial institutions to get their arms around this. And they will, uh, because I think we're going to have what I call a hybrid model. Part of us who are really, you know, in this rabbit hole, all right, those people who are doing mining, who are really crypto, you know, really um, efficient and, and smart with all of that, are going to use it just like they would the stock market. And they're going to trade and they're going to, and they understand it and they're going to own all their own assets. But many of us, that's a little uncomfortable. And so there's going to be what, what now is being called DeFi, sort of decentralized finance. And so it's, it's a hybrid of what we're used to centralized and some part of decentralized. So, you know, I have a wallet, like a bank account, right? And maybe I have a provider that is overseeing that wallet and making sure that I don't forget my password 
words. And, you know, there's a, um, you have 12 words that if you don't have those words, you're, you're gone. You don't, you can't access your funds. So maybe I have a provider that oversees some of that and, and has another copy of what I have that I can access in case I don't remember my passwords. Um, I want something like that, me, but I'm a traditional financial person. Um, so there will be some kind of hybrid, and I don't think we're going to completely eradicate. I don't think banks are totally going away. They're going to be restructured. So, you know, there there will be a world in which that moves forward, um, but there is very little governance at this point. Um, there has to be a lot more granularity around role of, of cryptocurrencies around uh, how it's used, how it's taxed, um, you know, what, what um, you know, what, what is being developed in terms of the software and the exchanges and how I get on them and the standards. Um, you know, right now there are no generally accepted accounting principles. So if you're a company, how, how can you, you know, that's hard. What, what do I call this thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, you know, that's why I think everybody really needs to start getting on the learning curve and understanding it. Um, it does provide a lot of benefits when you really think about it, because what happens is that uh, today there is so much replication. You know, I go to my bank, I deposit $10,000. Every month they send me a statement. Oh, Lynn, you deposit 10000 on this day. You did this, 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 and now you have $5,000. It's it's a duplication of uh, business processes, and you know your your story about the the Google Docs. You know w- what you don't necessarily want. Certainly, in a when you think about a company, you know if I'm buying something from you, I want to know that I bought it and all that, but I don't want to know all the gory details of you know. Your bank went to this bank, to that bank, to that bank, to that bank, and it finally got back to me to get paid. There's so many redundancies in the financial world as there are in the healthcare world. And so a lot of those are just replication of painful data. You know, I I don't know, even a healthcare bill. I mean, I don't, you know, if you ever go to the doctors or you go have something, you know, an x-ray or a special test or whatever, I mean, I get an insurance a bill. And I told my friend who's in the insurance business, I said, I never pay the first time I get the bill because every time they send me a bill, it's less. So I'm going to wait till the very end, you know, a year the later. Same way. <laughs> so there's this process that, you know, is so overwhelmed by this duplication of what, what are called ledgers in this world, you know, books, the beauty of sort of the blockchain technology is there's one book. <laughs> it has a lot of data in it, unfortunately, but it's one book. There's no, wait a minute, I think I deposited another 10,000 on Tuesday. It collapses a lot of the hierarchies that are built. I think that helps. And I do think it, it increases the security and it provides, you know, 24-7, 365. So no more, my bank is closed. So I have a question, and or maybe it's more of an observation, and you can just sort of reflect on it with me. What we've described is a very Western way of thinking about business, right? Organized, who does what, government oversees it, we're shifting to a different way of accounting for who does what and keeping everybody accountable. But in many parts of the world, and I'm thinking in particular in a lot of African countries, immutability isn't necessarily, and I... 
even taking like corruption out of it, immutability isn't the way they do business. It's, you know, my neighbor has this property and their grand great great grandfather had it. And as time goes by, I'm gonna get, you know, we're gonna expand the territory or or it's it's more relationship built. I mean, there's just other nuances to it. That's not necessarily our Western way of thinking about business. And again, it's a it's a sliding scale of what we might consider corruption versus cultural business practices that differ very much from our Western ones. How does this new global way of creating this immutable ledger to transact business translate into those kinds of cultures? So let me answer by two ways that I I hope I can answer the question. So number one is, you know, nefarious actors, if I want to buy drugs from you or guns from you or whatever, I'm going to pay you in cash because it's untraceable. All right. So the FBI or others are concerned about, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies or blockchain digital assets, you know, refer back to if if you're doing nefarious activities, it's typically with cash. Um, and that's why every 10,000 deposited is creates what's called a SARS report in banking, which is suspicious activity. Where did Lynn get that 10 grand? So um, <clears throat> while I realize that some cultures that is their entire way of paying. And I'm going to get to that in one second. But um, so I think the idea of having these digital assets reduces um, some of those, uh, the ability to track some of those, to actually not have them as nefarious, all right, that we can find out who's selling the drugs because there's a trace. That's Mm -hmm. number one. Number two is when you And while I don't think it's going to, and again, these are my opinions, I don't think it's going to completely change the world, whether it's Africa, Jamaica, whatever, I'm buying three, uh, you know, uh, pieces of fish from you at the fish market, I'm probably going to pay you with the local currency. I don't think that's completely going away because that's the way they exchange business. But let me give you an example. You know, a lot of the um, charitable organizations And this is something I wrote my uh, blockchain paper on when I was taking my course is, you know, a lot of charitable organizations say, oh, Lynn, this money is going to go to somebody in Africa because they want to build a business, but he can't afford a tractor. So if you give a hundred bucks, that's going to him buying his, you know, $4,000 tractor. Well, in fact, you know, a lot of those things, I'm not saying all, but a lot of times what happens is, you know, 60% goes to the marketing, uh, the people who own the company, the not-for-profit company, and maybe 20% goes to my guy who's trying to build a business and get a tractor. You know, that kind of a world goes away. This is completely transparent. I know that whoever that person is in Africa got my money because I see he bought the tractor. All of that is is uh, traceable. So you're right. The culture, you know, is it going to change my everyday? I don't use, personally, I don't use cash very often. I mean, unless I have no option or somebody gives me cash because me I either. paid it or whatever. You know, people who use cash, yes, I think you weren't going to completely, and, and you know, you're not going to completely completely stop using it. But I do think that when you think about how, uh, you know, some of the structures exist, the benefit of having this is I know that that guy in Africa got money to buy a tractor because I can trace it and he bought the tractor, right? Those are the things that really have the impact to change versus everybody, which is true in banking and true in healthcare, taking a piece of the action along the way. So I might Mm -hmm. get the box, he's getting 20. 
my intention was to give them a hundred, right? But everybody along the way is taking their little piece because they're accounting for it. Oh, debit credit, debit credit. Part of the business culture and in some parts of the world, it is sort of like greasing palms is how things get done. So it's just going to be interesting to me to see how this plays out. But to your point, it's not going to necessarily overnight replace those cultural practices and ways of transacting business. So this has been so, so helpful. I, I feel like I have a better grasp. I don't think I'm ready to go out <laughs> quite yet and uh, and try becoming a Bitcoin miner. So yeah, miners, I mean, <clears throat> in the Bitcoin world uh, or blockchain technology. So remember I talked about this peer-to-peer network. So there's really no banks. So I'm a ski instructor. And when I teach skiing, um, oftentimes you're on the mountain. You got this you know, outfit on, it doesn't have a ton of pockets, right? And you need a Kleenex and whatever. So I don't carry money with me. And most of the people that are my clients don't carry money with them. They want to Venmo me, which is perfect, right? They Venmo my account. Hey, what's your account? Here's my name. Boom, boom, boom. I get the money. Um, that is a peer-to-peer network. We've gotten rid of all the, the, the uh, middle players. When that transaction happens in a peer-to-peer blockchain network, so I'm going to say you took a lesson from me skiing and you said, I want to give her $25 for, for a a tip. The miners, because of the encryption, the technology, the blockchain, the chain itself goes out to the blockchain network, visible to everybody. It doesn't have your name, but it has your wallet address. And it says, Sue wants to give Lynn 25 bucks. And six miners, six quantum computers go out there and say, is this person valid? Does she have the $25? Six people authenticate your transaction. Say, yeah, yeah, she's good. She got the money. She has the account wallet. She can do this. And then they go, is my wallet address valid? You know, um, and, and they're just verifying the data, mostly verifying you that you can actually send it to me and then verifying, do I have an account that is valid that could be sent to? Six miners, six computers, verify that transaction once they do that done and they do that in a matter of seconds it's like a credit card transaction so it is actually less time than a credit card transaction to go out there and authenticate that okay that actually explained it really well yeah they're they're authenticators okay yeah and and (laughs) they can also uh so they get something for doing that so like your bank gets paid for that transaction. Like if you were to um, send me a wire transfer, you wouldn't do that for 25, but you'd probably pay 50 bucks to send me a wire transfer, right? Mm -hmm. So miners get paid usually in the current cryptocurrency. So if you're paying me in Bitcoin, which isn't likely, you're probably going to pay me in dollars. They're going to get like a present, a small token, and it's usually a digital token asset for that transaction. And thank you so much for explaining it. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I, I see the movement in my head and it makes sense and, and I, I get it. But again, I, I go back, circling all the way back to education. Do you have tips or resources that you'd like to share with our audience um, so they can continue educating themselves as this Wild Wild West world continues to evolve? Because that's going to be the key. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would um, I would highly recommend a couple books that really um, 
really sort of uh, set the stage. There, there are many technical books that I wouldn't recommend, but these are really a good general introduction. So one is called Blockchain Revolution uh, by uh, Dawn and Alec Tapscott. Uh, they're two father-son from Canada. Uh, I've heard them speak. They're actually really, really good. Um, that's a really good book to kind of get your arms around just the, the ecosystem. The other thing that I would recommend, there are some other books out there, <clears throat> but I would recommend that you make sure that you are, whether it's through uh, Twitter or Instagram uh, or LinkedIn, that you follow people like Gary Gensler. Gary Gensler is the SEC Commissioner, Securities and Exchange. He is very vocal about blockchain, crypto, digital asset as a value, as a, you know, money, uh, what that means, how to account for it. He uh, was an MIT professor and taught cryptocurrencies. Oh, he's somebody I listened to. Another woman named Hester Peirce, and her name is spelled P-E-I-R-C-E. She's a commissioner. Um, uh, she does a lot of speaking about this, and I think she really breaks it down in terms of why we need regulation, what that means. So that I would recommend those couple folks. I would be, I always watch people like FinCEN. There's the digital asset market structure. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, once you start going down the rabbit hole, as I say, once you start seeing Gary Gensler, you'll see other things that you, you should be looking for. The other, and this is a plug certainly for Boston Blockchain Association, but you know, an individual member is less than $100. We have, every other week, we have um, sessions on, it could be anything, could be regulatory, could be banking, could be regular, um, could be NFTs, could be, uh, what else are we doing? Uh, uh, forensics, you know, uh, how do you make sure that the wallets you're using, the exchanges you're using, um, you know, that that is, there's a lot out on YouTube. If you just start going out there, a guy named DeFi Dad is really interesting to hear. Um, I attended last week something called the Digital Asset Summit. There's a company called Blockworks. They publish a newsletter almost daily. So there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. I would just start reading, you know, start getting involved. I mean, almost every day I do a podcast or something, I take try to take 20 minutes and learn something or or even hear it again, because it's hard to get your arms yeah. around. Mm -hmm. So much to this. And those are awesome resources um, because you're right. I, this isn't a one and done. This is, and, and it's also changing every day, right? As so many emerging technologies are. So um, great resources. We are coming up on the last five minutes of our hour, and we want to give you an opportunity to tell us a bit about your career journey as a woman in finance, you know, started out very traditional finance, and now here we are, and you're an expert in cryptocurrency. So some of the high points or low points that you learned from, if you want to share those real quick, we would love to hear that from you. I started my career going through what's called a, a credit training program in banking. So it was a great introduction. It was like a year and a half program where you learned about every aspect of financial services and banking and so forth. So that was like very, very fortunate to be involved in that. You know, the big banks used to do it. Most of them don't do it anymore because it's hugely expensive. I mean, for literally 18 months, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have, I wasn't bringing in any revenue. I was an expense to the organization. So very fortunate to be able to have that in my background. 2003, I was approached by a 
a headhunter for a job in New York City with uh, Bank of New York. And before they merged with Bank of New York, now, long story short, they wanted me to move to New York. And I said, there's no way, you know, uh, my husband travels, my kids are happy. I, I'm not moving to New York, but I would be happy to fly there as much as possible, as long as I can like work from home Mondays from home. I want home to be my base, but I'll come to New York whenever you need me or whatever. Well, the guy who was hiring me said, I want you. And I said, well, that's sort of the thing. So he agreed to the money, the upfront bonus, that everything. But he said, I can't get you to work from home. And so I said, okay, well, I have a job, you know, no big deal, nothing lost. Three months later, I get a phone call and he said, I got it. We had to go to the vice chairman, which is the number two guy at the bank to get you to work from home on one condition. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, you can't tell anybody. You have to say you work from a Boston office. Well, they didn't have a Boston office. <laughs> so, um, so every time I walked into New York, they oh, Lynn from the Boston office. Like, <laughs> I had a New York number that came into my house. I mean, it was just, it was kind of pathetic. And about four years later, I was at a, an event and one of the guys said, you know, you're the only person who ever answers your phone. And I said, and he said, in the whole division. And I said, really, isn't that odd? Because I work from home. And he said, what? <laughs> so, um, I, I think, you know, for me personally, as a manager, um, I always looked at that and thought, you know, what a positive opportunity for companies. I know we're way past that now with COVID, but, you know, that was a real turning point because I always, I often looked at people who said, you know, I, I need flexibility. I needed flexibility. My husband traveled like 10 days a month. That was, I couldn't figure it out. Um, and I think, you know, we finally are there a uh, long time coming. That was 2003. But so since that many people have worked from home, but that was a real, uh, for me, uh, I think one of the things I learned about, and I'd say this for women is that um, ask for it. There's a very good book about it. You know, ask if you need that, uh, ask for it. You know, I think women don't do a good job of that. And um I'm not afraid to ask for it. That was, that was a, I wasn't afraid to ask for that, what I needed and I got it. And so that does set you up for asking for other things. Um, you know, along my way, I found out that people were getting things. I had no idea, you know, getting free parking, car wash, all this, you know, I finally started figuring it out, asking for it. Um, so I think you have to ask. And I think that's really important. Um, and, and, you know, it's hard, I think, starting out in the financial world uh, when you're the only woman in the room and um, to, to really stand up for yourself. Uh, but I learned it the hard way. I would say, you know, believe in yourself and, you know, make sure that you have enough network to, of other people to support you. And so my journey now really is to help other women and help everybody, not just women, but I, I do have a little carve out for um, helping women to really succeed and um, help them, you know, where I had a lot of challenges to get through those challenges, whether they're entrepreneurs or whether they're in this blockchain world to get educated, you know, don't expect someone else to do it for you. You, you got to do some of the hard work. Lynn, Thank you so much for sharing advice. that. Yes, mm -hmm. I love it. And, you know, to your point about just asking for it, giving your permission to just ask for it. And, I'm sure you were respected for that by your male peers at a time where, again, women weren't doing the thing because you were you stood out because of that is my point. And thank you so much for sharing that because I think it's such valuable advice to date. So a hundred percent and stand your ground, which is what mm -hmm. you did. 
So thank you for your time today for all thank this great you. information. I oh. feel I feel like I have my arms part of the way around <laughs> yes. blockchain, which I didn't an hour ago. So thank you. You're awesome. We'd love to have you back again another time. I'd love to be back. We can get down the crypto rabbit hole. <laughs> oh my goodness, we should and cover NFTs. But I I all echo what Sue said because I, you know, again, being very vulnerable, I texted her about an hour before we started and I said, I'm, I'm scared. I'm intimidated. Yeah. Um, and anytime that I've tried to read anything about cryptocurrencies or blockchain, I always felt deflated after because I was none the wiser. You know, I, I still didn't get it. And I, like Sue said, I'm walking away today with information that I actually get and, mm-hmm. you know, very digestible information. Um, so you have a gift of explaining it. So thank you so much, Lauren. Well, Thanks, keep Lynn. building because really, I mean, as I said, I come from a long, you know, history of financial services and I, some days someone says something, I'm like, what, what are they talking about? Like, huh? Um, so it isn't, it is really challenging to get your arms around it, but just keep, you know, keep plugging away and uh, you'll get there. And it is every day is something new. So you're never, you're never there. (laughs) (laughs) But don't let that discourage you folks. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Thanks, Lynn. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.